Hi, I'm Willie Miller. Hi, I'm Seth Coe. I'm Caitlin Beckett. Hello, I'm Jonathan Magnew. Hi, it's Grant Haggerty. Hi, I'm Sharon Spoon from the Wallaroo. I'm Azuma Nelson. I'm Gashirin and you're listening to Not the Footage. Yes, you are indeed listening to another podcast of Not The Footy Show. We must apologise that we've been off air for a while, but I had a family bereavement and had to go back to the UK. But it's great to be back. I'm Ashley Morrison. And I'm John Lee. Oh, John, uh, plenty to talk about, as always, in the world of sport. And I think we should probably, first of all, turn our attention to the A-League and say congratulations to Adelaide United. Feel sorry a little bit for Western Sydney Wanderers. Another grand final and they lost, but the crowds in Adelaide were fantastic to see. They were definitely the best team uh, in the competition this year and, in my opinion, thoroughly deserved to win it. And it shows you the why I think it's important to have finals when you look at the way the Adelaide season panned out. They had a horrible start to the year. They managed to pull themselves together and by the end of the year, once you get through that final series, they were the best team. They were indeed. One thing that did upset me a little bit watching the grand final in, and I, was when they said oh, Adelaide is the first team to score two goals in a grand final. Now, I know they are the first to score two goals in an A-League grand final, but I do think we need to start acknowledging the NSL. Yes, it was a different competition, but it was a national competition, so I don't like those sort of statements. Didn't Melbourne beat Adelaide 5-1 in a grand final? It was 6-1, actually, yeah. But I'm not sure whether they were. There was the A League. Yeah, I know. What, I don't know what the score was in half time in that game. Actually, I can't remember. I thought, yeah, I thought it was about three 0 But that was the comment because I remember writing it down at the time. Oh. Oh, and, I, well. and I also thought it was oh. interesting that Fox said uh, this game being broadcast to an estimated 60 million worldwide. Now that's an interesting one because a big thing they say is how they've got these world world rights. And when I was in the UK, the A League is now being pushed it's either on after midnight or at 10 a.m in the morning so where it's not got a prime slot in the uk and and a lot of my friends who were watching it earlier have gone don't watch it anymore they don't they just reckon the standards just not good enough well they've got a lot to choose from. yeah they do exactly <laughs> but uh you know it was interesting the uh, but no i thought i thought it was a, a good grand final and i thought it was good that adelaide won interesting thing again in the a-league this year first season i can remember where not a single coach was given the boot oh that's a good stat yet yeah things could change before the start of next season so, uh, yeah, you know, that that in a way I think is good. I think there's probably two reasons for that. I think owners have realised that they've got to pay them out if they sack them and the owners are doing it tough at the moment with that. Uh, also, I would just like to mention Diego Castro. I think, you know, fantastic that he won the Johnny Warren, it's now the Johnny Warren Julie Dolan medal. Also, clean sweep of the Glory Awards. Uh, but the key thing, and I wrote a piece on the, the website, notthefootyshow.com, the key thing was when they signed Andy Keogh because Castro was of the same standard as Andy Keogh. And so suddenly he had someone that he could play the pass first time. And if you look at Barisha when he was at Brisbane, him and Thomas Broish combined brilliantly. Barisha struggled this year because there wasn't anybody quite on the same wavelength as him at Melbourne Victory. And if you look at, to me, Castellan at uh, Western Sydney Wanderers, I believe was the best player in the league. But he had no one around him who was on the same plane as him in speed of thought and seeing passes and running into the where the pass was going to be played. A bit like, you know, Samson Seer when he came over here. I know glory players always say he wasn't that good. But again, his speed of thought and his vision was just way ahead of the players around him at that time. 
That's an interesting theory there. Of course, there's uh, something else that's uh, popping up for the A-League, and that's going to be the television rights very soon. And in the background of the Optus deal for uh, the Premier League, um, you know, they're trying to get free-to-air coverage for the... Uh, for the sport, but the, the package is split between the A-League and the uh, international rights. They're two separate packages. The, the rights to the international games are held by someone else, not by the A-League, not by the FFA. So it'll be interesting to see whether they can snare that, that free-to-air package or whether the, the TV executives in free-to-air land are going to look at SBS... Two's rating figures and go, you know, not for us. I, I personally can't see any of them picking up the free-to-air rights, and not for the figures that the FFA want, and not for the figures that the FFA need. Um, that is the big thing. I, the thing I found interesting was, I think it was the beginning of this week, uh, the Sydney Morning Herald finally writing an article where they're saying, unless the FFA filter that money down to grassroots, they're going to kill the game. Because at the moment, all of the money's going to the Socceroos, the A-League owners, and the A-League players. And the the interesting stat for me was that they were saying that 22% of only 22% of people who play football in this country follow an A-League team. That is no surprise whatsoever. It doesn't surprise me. I mean, I don't I I upset the Glory CEO because I said, "Well, I don't support Perth Glory. I follow them, but I'm not a supporter. Like Swindon Town is my team, first foremost always will be, <laughs> and they're the team whose results I look for with a passion. I will go and watch a game whenever I'm back in England if they're playing. So, and I just don't have that affinity because that was the team I grew up with. And so, and I think if you're a youngster growing up here, if you have that connection. But I I do still think that what has to happen is these A-League clubs can't be charging kids to come and participate in their programs. If they want to bring those kids into the fold, it has to be financed by the clubs. If you're taking money off mums and dads for your little Jimmy to go and play in a Glory Youth team or attend any of their academies, I'm sorry, I think that is wrong. You are there for the community as well as being a business. And this is why you wouldn't see clubs in the UK charging kids. I'm still struggling with this idea that sport is business. It's like uh, we're hearing in the political sphere at the moment, especially in the US, uh, you know, government, it's business. The government's just a big business. Well, it's not. It has elements of business in it, but the role of government isn't the same as the role of a corporation. And the same in sport. Yes, it is a business because it's got to survive. But sport is not business. Yeah, I, can't I, I carry on and behave in the same way. Look, you know, you know I don't have a lot of time for sports administrators and I think part of the problem that sport has found is that now they have brought in people that do not have an affinity with sport, that they are bringing them in purely to look at what they say is the bottom line and that's become the crucial thing. And I do think that board members are again in a lot of sports out of touch with what the grassroots or the actual... and it, it, you, you take football in this country. Most of the people that play football in this country are amateur. There's a very, very small percentage. And, and I mean, even if you, you look at the NPL here, the players getting paid $200, $300, they're still amateur clubs. None of them have a full-time employee running those clubs. So as far as I'm concerned, they're amateur clubs. And, and so what, But there's no connect and there's no understanding of the problems that those clubs face running a club on a day-to-day basis, what it's like to be a member of one of those clubs. They've just lost that connection. And I think... And it's not just football. There's other sports as well. You talk to anyone in rugby union, they will tell you here in WA that rugby WA has lost that connect with the clubs around the state. So 
everybody I speak to in sports. I mean, you, you could turn to the hockey. I mean, again, just this week, we had Great Britain playing against Western Australia. Big honour for all those Western Australian players selected to play against the number four ranked team in the world. Wouldn't you think that the administrative body could create a program so at least all those guys had something to show their children, their grandchildren down the track, especially when you think that WA beat Great Britain 1-0 in the first game? Now, I just think that to me is, is just, it shows the disconnect that there is at the moment between administrators and players. I wonder if some ways there's not too much going on and, and with the administrators as much as anybody else has become deluded to what is a special occasion and what's not a special occasion. There's a lot, I mean, WA as a hockey team probably plays far more games these days than they did 20, 30, 40 years ago. So that the idea of playing for WA and representing WA was something bigger than it is now. I, I think it's, it's st- still an yeah. honour for the players and all that, but, you know, they go to the national championships and they've got games here and they've got games here. And the, 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 Whereas 30 years ago, you got selected in the WA state team. You went to the national championships. So that was basically it. Oh, know, it was. was. Six games a year you were playing, <laughs> Maybe. I know, but I still think, and, and you must never dilute that honour. I mean, if you were given the chance to represent WA, what would it mean to you, you know? Oh, I wouldn't have a right arm, because that's what I give to do it. Yeah, you know? exactly. You know, I mean, I, I would have, I know, you know, back in, in the UK, I represented the county that I was born in, and it meant the world to me. I remember the first time walking onto the pitch, I felt 20 feet tall. Yeah. You know, and it, it means something if it's where you're from and all of that. And I just think you have to accept that. But I do, I do also think that the, the corporate world, which if we're looking at sports administration, there's again too much um, corporate BS where they're having to do reports and, that nobody read, you know, half the stuff. I think some of it is irrelevant. And it, to me, it's better man management, better time management could see all the sports actually be run a little bit better. And I think these days boards are also worried about things like how they're perceived in the community. They're worried about personal behaviour, individuals' personal behaviour they suddenly can dictate. Now, a few years ago, all a sports administrator had to worry about was competently running the sport that they were being paid to run. Now they've got to worry about a whole raft of other things that are taking their attention away from what is their core business. I think the sad thing as well, in some of the boards, you've got people that are on the board purely because it ticks a box on their CV that they want to say that they were a board member. I don't think there's a lot of people realise their responsibilities on a board. For example, you know, if the organisation gets into financial difficulty, you as a board member are responsible. And if it comes down to it and there's been some bad management, you're liable for those costs that they can come after you as a board member and take your home or whatever to to pay those bills and I don't think some people realise how important their role is and the responsibility attached to being on a board in that I think they think oh look I attended the nine meetings out of ten in a year you know and I rubber stamp this but I don't think they realise just how responsible they are. And this applies to not just boards of the sporting variety but when you look at the makeup of boards across Australia at least, there's, there's a lot of people that seem to go from one failed adventure to another failed adventure and there's a very tiny purple circle that is revolving through these board positions, be they sporting clubs or be whatever they happen to be and I often think, you know, if you were to judge that person's performance the same way you judge a player's performance, 
Oh, that'll be the local jet landing. You, you won't... Those people would never have jobs after that first failed board experience. And, and, and John, the same thing applies in CEOs in that, I mean, I can think of one CEO and obviously for, for legal reasons, I'm not going to name <laughs> that person on air, but did a pretty poor job at one organization, ended up at another because on his CV it had shown that yeah, he had exactly. been the CEO of this particular organization and lo and behold, the next one went broke. Now, again, it, it, and I know talking to one of the football coaches in this country and he was saying the thing that upsets him is a lot of the people that get these A-League jobs, they may do a shocking job, but because they've coached Sydney FC or whatever, they will get another job because everyone goes, ooh, Sydney FC, best club in the country, you know? Or, <laughs> Not you anymore. Know, well, no, it hasn't been for a while and I think there's a lot of... But, but you know what I mean is that the minute you've got that on your CV, that will open a door for you to get another job. Absolutely. Whereas if you can't get one of those A-League jobs, it's very, very difficult for you to get in. And, I mean, that, that goes across the society too. That's something that's got to change within the culture of all yeah. the out levels of society. Hey, just while we're on the round ball game, Leicester City, what an effort. Congratulations. Fantastic. Absolutely brilliant, yeah. And I couldn't imagine uh, how those players must have felt. Anybody involved with the club would have felt after that. It's uh, quite extraordinary. Maybe it'll be another 20 years. Maybe it won't. Well, I think the key thing is it gives people like me who support lowly clubs hope. I mean, it was uh, Swindon beat Leicester in the playoffs to go up to the Premier League for the first time ever um, back in 92-93. That was a 4-3 game. One of the greatest games they reckon played at Wembley. Uh, but yeah, it was absolutely fantastic. Really pleased for them. No big names in their team as well. And uh, I think it was interesting that Ranieri said, you know, that I think he deserves a lot of credit because if you look at the success, he knew what he had and he didn't bring in the big names. He just brought in players that would work with them. It's the old money ball theory, isn't it? Yeah. And I think he did it. And I mean, I just was happy for him as well. I think that. What was startling is in the game against Manchester United, there were players out there playing for Manchester United who were paid or worth more than the entire Leicester team. And maybe it's about time football, you know, took a look at itself and how they rate players and, you know, the money that they pay them. Well, someone said to me just before we get off that, uh, I wonder what odds you'll get on Leicester being relegated next season. (laughs) (laughs) Well, funny things happen in sport. It could very well happen. And For their sake, I hope it doesn't. But I'm sure the fans will go, hey, look, after what we did last year. Hey, would you would you swap being relegated from the Premier League for a European title? Uh, not for me, no. I'd rather win the Premier League. No, but uh, what I mean is if they've won the Premier League. Yeah. So, okay. Would, so, would you swap playing in the Premier League, i.e. next being season, relegated being relegated next season, yeah. for a European title? If you knew you were going to win the Euro... You're, Win the Champions League. Yeah, Champions League. Would you say, well, it's not so bad if we drop down a year? Because oh. doesn't winning it give you get you in the next year as well? No, you wouldn't stay in the Premier League. No, no, get oh. you into the European. Oh, yes, it does now. So yeah. even if you were playing second division, you'd still have that carrot. Or I think you you play off, don't you? And you may end up in the Europa League, but it gives you that opportunity. You're still in Europe. Yeah. No, I th- <laughs> it's a difficult one. Yeah, I think I think you probably <laughs> would take it. Hey, and just while we're on uh, English football. I- you mentioned before your little trip back home. Where's my Swindon merchandise? Hi, I'm Seb Coe, and you're listening to Not The Footy Show. 
Well, just changing tack now, John. Uh, the Olympics are just around the corner. They're going to be on us before we even realise. And I think it's going to be really interesting. I mean, for me, just quickly, I think the sevens, the way we've seen so many different teams, like Samoa just beat Fiji in Paris. We had Kenya winning in Singapore. I think that is, we've had South Africa win titles. The All Blacks have won titles. It's going to be a really interesting. I think that is a medal that could be up for grabs by any of the teams. And I don't know if you saw that the Kenyans, when they went back to Kenya, there were all these four-wheel drives lined up at the airport as a gift. Um, Uh, for their success because it was the first time they'd ever won it and they're saying if they come back with a gold medal they reckon they're going to be given you know half the country oh gee well what do you make of uh, Jared Hayne I know that you haven't really heard much about it I think pick a sport and stick to it mate (laughs) it's part of it and and I mean that seriously I think if you want to do anything well you have to give it the time the dedication I think trying to get in the Fiji side now is to me it's too late I think they're good enough without him. I don't think they need him. And I I would be very surprised if he went to the Olympics wearing their shirt. Yeah, it's a, it's a hard one, especially when you've got, obviously, a team that is good already. Like you say, they don't need him. Um, you know, How do you tap that guy on the shoulder that's going to miss out so Jared can be parachuted in? Yeah, I mean, you'd be pretty upset. You would. But then again, maybe he's going to prove to be so extraordinary at it players go well he's got my spot because he's you, you, it's hard to tell I can't see it but it I, I still think if he was serious about wanting to be a part of it he should have made this decision six eight nine months ago what I well that's interesting in context of what Richard Ings and the World Anti-Doping Authority former head has had to say uh, you know his claim is that, that Jared Hayne has to have been enrolled in a, a drug program for more than six months prior to the Olympics, which patently he hasn't. The NFL is non-WADA compliant. Now, rugby authorities have come out and said, nah, he's sweet, he's fine, doesn't have to worry about that sort of stuff. Now, in the backdrop of what's going on with the Russians, uh, you know, there's, there's going to be athletes potentially who are innocent Russian athletes who are going to miss out. Yeah, and now, there's still the Kenyans are still under a bit of a cloud, some of their athletes. Yeah, so... Why is it, it appears as though an exception's being made, and it's just interesting how he can go from the, the the athlete that's required to play NFL to the athlete that's required to play sevens will be an interesting transition, because I can't imagine certainly in the early stages that he could run a game out, for instance, he'd be blown up after half time. Yeah, you would think it'd be a very different fitness levels. Yeah, and it's not to say he can't do it, but. Yeah, I mean, he's a pretty remarkable athlete. But the the other thing for the Olympics that I found interesting in talking to a lot of people is the question of now, not only is Australia doing it, but more and more countries are now going, we're only going to fund you if Uh you are a genuine opportunity of winning a medal. Thank you for leading me into this, Ashley. Now, I'm not sure how much you've followed the old Cathy Chiller Nick Kyrgios, Bernard Tomic spat about selection. For I've the got to be honest, Kyrgios and Tomic, I just kind of, they, they just turn me off completely. Well, I don't really care about Tomic. He's got his $10 million. So, you know, going up against a wall on the Gold Coast somewhere, Bernard, and, you know, in five years' time when you appear on Today Tonight pleading your... Or I'm a, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. <laughs> what interested me was the, the comments Cathy made in response to Nick Kyrgios and that... Um, it wasn't just about winning. There was more to the Olympics than just about winning. And, and 
there was more to your selection criteria than just about your ability to win. And it was about your behaviour. Well, why is the Australian Olympic Committee only funding people on the basis of performance? Well, it's the Australian Sports Council, isn't it, that does yeah. the funding. But yeah, exactly. I mean, why, if that's the case, is it based on you're going to win a medal? So, uh, there's a lot of sports out there that are trying to compete, but they can't get the funding. And why aren't they allowed to compete regardless of whether they win or not, as Cathy Chillis came out and said, that's what the idea is. But that's the thing. The, the Olympic ideal, I think, has gone by the by. And, and what I'm hearing is they reckon that a lot of countries now, you're not going to see 300, 400 athletes representing various countries. You're going to see it trimmed all the way down to about 150. And it will be only those that have got a chance of making an Olympic final or winning a medal that will get selected. The rest will be just, sorry, we can't afford it. You're not going to go, and I mean it, it's it's criminal because if you look at the South African hockey team, they're you know they were told that they couldn't go because there wasn't enough interracial, um, what do you call it, uh, mix diversity. within yeah diversity within the team. They offered to get their own money to pay their own way because they'd qualified, uh, but were still not allowed to go. And I, and I think you so it's that's another interesting one as well because if these countries say, well, you know, I'm not going to fund you. Say you were a great fencer, for example, you qualify on merit, but the Australian Sports Commission go, well, we're not funding you. The AOC goes, we're not sending you. What's to stop you then getting your own money and going, because you've qualified, why can't you go? Well, it's almost the Eddie the Eagle situation, isn't it? That's, or that's almost what we're talking about. Yeah, although he, you know, in those days there was no qualifying um, limit that you had to make. Are we going to end, end up back at the days of the, uh, you know, the Olympics at the turn of the 19th, 20th centuries? Is it going to be a case of the Australian team's going to roll up in... You know, some city that's hosting it in 20 years' time and a bloke like Edward Flack's going to be just happens to be in the city and they go, oh, look, mate, do you mind running in the 100 metres for us? Yeah, it's, I just think it's it's very sad. And again, it comes back to the commercialisation of sport in that, um, you know, the IOC were very critical of Atlanta in that they said Atlanta was hijacked by the commercial world because... Coke you know, games. Oh, there were, yeah, there were just brands everywhere. Uh, but then if you look at it now, the way it's going, it's become so expensive for teams to be sent there. Um, you know, for example, the sport you love and the, the one I do a lot of work with, hockey, they've now just come out and said that hockey can send a 19th player as long as it's a goalkeeper. So if you haven't got... If, if you have 16 in your squad... You have two reserves that stay outside of the village. If one of those reserve, if both of those reserves are outfield players, you can send a 19th player as long as it's a goalkeeper. If one of your 218 is a goalkeeper, then you can't have the 19th. But I was talking to GB and Australia, and they're going, well, we're just weighing up the cost of it because, again, they have to stay outside the village. There'll be no official transport. Their accreditation is going to be very different, and it is a bit of a drama because they're not going to be able to go into certain areas where the rest of the squad will be able to go. And is it worth it? And, I mean, GB was saying, Bobby Crutchley said, we have to do it because if the keeper gets injured and we haven't got a backup everyone would say, why didn't you do it? So he goes, we have to do it. Um, but it's, it's, again, it's like, you know, it's a crazy situation. Hi, I'm Chris Sorello from the Kookaburras, and you're listening to Not The Footy Show.
And just on the subject of hockey, one team that is really going to epitomise that amateur spirit in that they paid for themselves to get to the Hockey World League where they qualified for the Olympics is Canada. And uh, I thought it would be really interesting to catch up with one of their players to find out what it's been like, what Canada, which is not a field hockey nation, how they've been embraced. And uh, I managed to catch up with Mark Pearson. Mark Pearson, welcome to Not The Footy Show. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure, Ashley. Well, we're, we're chatting to you over there in Canada now. Ice hockey's a big sport there. Field hockey, not so big. So how did you get involved in uh, the outdoor version? Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that's true. Every, everyone I meet in, uh, in Vancouver, when I say I'm a hockey player, they uh, immediately think ice hockey. And, you know, many of the guys on my team were, were all, and myself included, were all ice hockey players growing up. And it's, you know, it dominates the sports news and the, the television broadcasts around Canada all the time. But, uh, I'm fortunate in that I'm from the West Coast and in where field hockey is most popular and, you know, partially due to weather, we're not frozen tundra for most of the winter like the rest of the country. Uh, um, but, and then I guess there's just, you know, there's a few facilities and it's, uh, you know, it's where most of the athletes typically come from and there's just a culture of it here. So my mom is from Ireland and my dad is from England and they emigrated to, immigrated to Canada in the early 80s. And so they played a little bit in uh, in university and in, and in high school back back on the British Isles. So it was sort of a way for them, I think, to connect with with more Brits and more Irish like themselves when they came to Canada. And uh, so I grew up watching them play a little bit, and then sort of was introduced to the sport through them. So, do you think that early introduction to ice hockey has helped in any way? A hundred percent. I mean, I always say to you know guys like Scott on my team that. If we were somehow able to capture, you know, the five percent of the two percent of failed ice hockey players in this country, we'd be uh, we'd be a medal contender because, you know, Carter, myself, Tupper, a lot of the experienced guys were all ice hockey players growing up, and we play ice hockey in the winter and then field hockey in the spring and fall. So, you know, it, it's a shame that the sport isn't more popular because there's so many skills that that naturally transfer, and you know, hockey, ice hockey is obviously on skates, so it's a much faster game. So if your skills, you know, if, if you're able to, to control the puck moving at a higher pace, I think, you know, it, it just helps with that hand-eye coordination, you know. And I always tell kids, you know, try not to specialize when they're young in, in one sport. And I, I think that, you know, some of my skills as a field hockey player can go back to, to being an ice hockey player as a kid, for sure. I suppose uh, Canada qualifying for things like the Olympic Games this time around, that will help you maybe capture those uh, 2% of failed players because certainly well, <laughs> it'll make people think, well, if I can't go to the Olympics as an ice hockey player, there's a chance as a field hockey player. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that's exactly what we're trying to hope to achieve. And, and you know, as it stands now, you, you don't want to cheer against teams that are trying to qualify. There's a couple still left, but we are the only men's team sport that that's qualified for the Olympics this summer. So... You know, we might have the unique distinction of that, which, you know, will hopefully get a few more eyeballs on us and say, my gosh, you know, how is it that these field hockey boys are the only the only guys that have made it? So, you know, it's uh, it's good. It's, um, you know, like anything, there there are going to be more eyeballs on you and a lot of focus. So, you know, we just hope we can put a good performance and show off our personality and and just do the country proud. I'm sure that you will. Now, it was a dramatic fashion in which you qualified in Argentina. (laughs) I mean, what are your recollections of that game? I mean, it was at uh, New Zealand's expense at the time, but of course, they've now qualified with South Africa pulling out. Yeah, that that was uh, certainly one of the more memorable nights in my life. And, uh, you know, I immediately, after the game was done, 
the first thing I did was was obvious. I didn't have any family down there. Not a lot of family could make it down there. There was a few parents in the crowd and and one girlfriend. But you know, to to be a young guy, twenty year old on the twenty one year old on that Beijing team, and then to to have the disappointment of missing out in Olympic games. Uh, uh, you know, after initially thinking, oh, this is great. Every four years, I get to go to an Olympics. What a great sport! Uh, you know, it really put things in perspective for me. And and then just to to go through a thirty two minute shootout to get there. Uh, I can say I was quick to pick up my phone and, and I didn't care about the roaming charges. I flipped them on and uh, I phoned my mom and phoned my sister and, you know, there was a lot of tears flowing. So, you know, full credit to, to the, to the team itself for, for putting in a good performance for, for 60 minutes. And then, you know, certainly to Dave Carter, our, our goalie in the pipes there who, uh, who brings that, you know, that road hockey butterfly style goalkeeping that, that has proved so effective in shootouts. So, you know, I don't know if I don't know if my heart could take it again, but uh, you know, just hearing so many of the stories from back home of of people that watched it or followed it on Twitter or stopped their car when they were driving to try and find Wi-Fi so they could watch it. My mom couldn't handle watching it, so she went upstairs, and my little sister was downstairs watching it, yelling it back up, like if anyone had scored or missed. So you know, it's just it is a small community, but people care a lot about how we do and. When we did get back, just to hear all those different stories, just put everything in perspective, and yeah, it was—I mean, it was unbelievable, really. The thing that I think made it great was you guys really are the archetypal Olympic spirit, the amateurs, in that you'd all paid your own way to go to the Hockey World League to play. Yeah, that is—that's true. I mean, we're we're invested in 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 many more ways than one, you know, and uh, you know, we put our heart and soul into the team itself, and also our pocketbook. So. You know, it's it's just a reality. It's it's something that uh, it's we've just come to live with, and it it is a unique. We feel like it's a unique distinction for ourselves, and it's just a rallying cry. You know, it's you know it's, we've done different fundraisers, hat sales, t-shirt sales. You know, and it, it just brings you together. So, uh, you know, it's not something we like to bitch and moan about, uh, but you know, it's just something you have to deal with. And you know, it, it, we've been fortunate in that. There's been very rare situations where guys just couldn't afford to go because that's that's not what sports about. You want everyone to be able to afford it, so it's not the costs haven't been, you know, they've certainly been a burden on guys, but it's not it's not been that big, you know, because that would be that would be brutal if if your team selection was based on who could afford to go. That's that's not what sports about. So now I can imagine that it really would have galvanized you as a group of players because you're all in the same boat. Yeah, no, hundred percent. I mean, you. Like I said, you realize you're invested in a lot more maze than one. And, you know, we're all out coaching in the community or we got a plumber on the team. We got, geez, we got all sorts of, we got a, a guy who's a carpenter. Uh, you know, so there's a lot of unique ways that guys find to get by. And, you know, it doesn't, we try to make sure it doesn't detract from our training in, in any way. And, you know, guys are just, as I say, fully committed and, and we'll do whatever it takes, uh, whether it be coaching or, or doing some side jobs, plumbing or, or carpentry. So. so it's going to be important that you do actually put on a good show in, in Rio because, again, everybody will be looking. If you do win a couple of games and suddenly, you know, again, that interest is going to rise, isn't it? Yeah, well, that's just it, really. And, and I mean, it's in the same way that uh, the new format of the Hockey World League sort of was beneficial to us in our ability to qualify, I think that a quarterfinal – uh, having a quarterfinal in an Olympic Games is, you know, it, it offers us a little bit of a lifeline in terms of, you know, 
you know, who knows, getting to top four or whatever. But, you know, our goal going in is obviously to qualify for that quarterfinal. And then and then you just hope something like what happened in, in Argentina back, you know, about a year ago now can happen again. So you just, everything comes together on the day. So, you know, it's uh, it's good. I mean, we know we're not we're not going in thinking we have to medal or we're going to medal. We just go in thinking, you know, take one game at a time and, and get into that quarterfinal and, and see what happens. Just going away from the Olympics for a second, I mean, obviously yourself and Scott Tupper have played in Europe. How, how difficult was it, you know, from and how were you accepted? Because as you said at the very beginning, you know, Canada's not regarded as one of the <laughs> strongholds of field hockey. Well, I mean, we did have some some good trailblazers. Uh, you know, Rob Short and Kim Pereira had played in the hoof class and they, I guess, they Shorty was the MVP of the EHL in, in 2000 and... Jeez, was it 2011 or 2010? But you know, there's there was some there was some trailblazers for us, which I think helped. Uh, we were also fortunate in that there was a uh, coach connection. So our national team coach in, in 2009 uh, had had grown up in Hamburg. So you know how the hockey world works. It's it's very much who you know and how you know people. And uh, you know the club in, in Germany was willing to take a chance on Scott and myself, and we went over together, and we had two amazing years there. And won the German league the second year we were there, which was just, you know, an unbelievable experience and an unbelievable week of partying afterwards. Like I, the Germans know how to down some beers. I'll tell you that. Uh, but you know, it, it's good. It, it really broadened my horizons as a, as a small town guy from Canada. And, it, you know, it definitely made me a better player and, you know, it, it just exposes you. I think the biggest thing is, you know, the games are, are good, but, you know, playing with, you know, world class players on a on a daily basis in training. It's it's something that, you know, maybe at our in our club system at home in Canada we don't have that opportunity. But you know, when you go to when you go to Europe and you play in Germany or you play in Belgium, you know, the the quality of players just this that much higher. So, you know, it just forces you to, to raise your game. So it was a it was a big stepping stone for me me in my career and you know I just hope that I've I've paved the way or Scott's paved the way for, for younger guys to go abroad because I think it's it's hugely important just as I say, not only from hockey, but just, you know, the friendships you make and just, you know, broadening your horizon as, as a person as well. The other thing, of course, you were the very first Canadian to play in the Hockey India League and, yeah. and marked your debut very well with a goal. <laughs> yeah, that was, I thought, I figured after, you know, one goal in the first quarter, it was going to be easy. They'd be coming fast and furious, but alas, but no, again, another, another amazing opportunity from myself and, uh, Again, just it was it was just such a, f- a fun thing. I mean, it is a bit of a traveling roadshow when you're there, and w- which is good and bad. I mean, you just get to know people from around the world, and you know you're in uh, you know you're in select company certainly, which which is nice. Uh, but it's just you know I, I mean one of the highlights of my hockey career will be showing up in Ranchi 90 minutes before the game and looking around and hearing the stands and I said what's going on here and the stands were totally full 5,000 people I said I turned to my soul I think I asked Benny or something what's going on here yeah yeah no they if they come an hour before the game they won't get a seat so they come two hours before the game so you know it, it just you know there's little unique things like that that I'll never forget and and it just that I mean it's a great competition and I, I hope it keeps going and he's, he keeps gaining strength because I just I think it's a great great opportunity for guys is it true that you got the call up on Christmas Eve? Yeah, that's true. That was a nice Christmas gift. Yeah, I woke uh, I woke up to an email, and uh, unfortunately, Austin Smith had had injured himself, and I, I guess they'd been humming and hawing as to, to who to select. And uh, I was fortunate enough to be asked to go. So it was uh, one heck of a Christmas present, I'll tell you that. 
Well, how much longer are you expecting to go on after the Olympics, or is it too early to be asking that question? Uh, I think you know anyone who's my age, twenty-eight, and you know has uh, aspirations, you know, beyond hockey has to always be thinking about that sort of stuff, right? And you know, you can't as awesome as the Olympics are, and uh, you know, and how much you know a lot of us are sacrificing to prepare ourselves adequately. You realize, you know, that day in August you know, is going to come and suddenly it's all over and then you got to think about real life again. So, you know, I'm, I'm putting some feelers out there in Vancouver. I think I'd like to stay in Canada for at least a year. And, you know, I've got some personal things. My sister's getting married in September and got some family coming over for that. So I think I'd like to stick around for a bit. Um, but I know I'm not done with hockey, certainly internationally. Um, and, uh, but, you know, where I apply my domestic trade, I think I might be a bit closer to home and, and look to sort of develop something on the on the career side. So, Well, Mark, it's great catching up with you. And I'm sure that Canada is going to be everyone's favorite underdog at the Olympic yeah. Games. And let's hope you can get to the quarterfinals because it'll really help the game over there. Well, that's just it, right? You know, and uh, we're just trying to show off our personality a bit with this red caribou movement, throwing the antlers up at games. So, you know, I, I think that it's already generating some steam. We were out in the community in Vancouver the other day asking people what they knew about field hockey, and we got a wide range of answers. The funniest being uh, where we asked the guy what a field hockey stick was. He said, you know, is this for bringing chicks over? And we said, well, no, it's quite the opposite, in fact. So we hope, well, hopefully we'll change that this summer and people will take notice of us and the, the chicks will come by. So, Fantastic. Mark, great to catch up with you and all the very best in Rio. Yeah, thanks very much, Ashley. Pleasure to be on. Hi, I'm Olympian Adrian D'Souza from India, and you are listening to Not The Footy Show. And that was Mark Pearson from the Canadian field hockey team, and uh, we really do wish them all the best. Great to hear that they're going out there trying to get all the support from the Canadians and going out with the antlers because they're called the Red Caribou. And he was telling me actually off-air that they um, sat down in groups recently and had to do a study on former... Um, representatives of Canada at the Olympics for field hockey and he goes it was really fascinating sitting as well with some of these guys who were still so emotional about going to an Olympic Games and he goes it's just really made you realize how honored you are to be representing your country at an event like the Olympic Games. Uh, who, who won the medals at the Montreal Olympics. New Zealand beat Australia in the final 1 0. Yeah. And there's bronze? a great book just come out on that. Who uh, bronze? bronze, I'm trying to think. I think it was Pakistan, was it? Oh, okay, okay. I'm sure Canada might, might have been in the women's Canada has done something at some stage out of the blue and won a medal. Anyway. But wish them all the best. But, uh, yeah, it's going to be an interesting games anyway, especially with quarterfinals, as he said in that interview. Mm. If they can make the quarterfinals, anything can happen. Once you're in the finals, it's a whole new ball game. There is one um, cloud hanging over the Olympics, and that would be the Zika virus. The World Health Organization's come out and said this is an accident waiting to happen, essentially, a pandemic dropping 500,000 people from all across the globe into a city that contains... A, a really nasty disease and the health authorities have real concerns that it could lead to a worldwide pandemic. Where, where do you sit on it? Oh, look, uh, I mean, when there was a possibility I might have been going there to commentate, I know my wife was not keen for me to go at all for the reasons you just said. Uh, 
look, I, it would be a very difficult one because I think everybody wants to be a part of an Olympic Games and you will all think it won't happen to me, I won't get the virus. But there is a genuine risk and if the World Health Organization is saying that, I think people have... that. They obviously err on the side of caution yeah. but you still have to be very aware and I'd want to know if there were any vaccinations or whatever that fell within the doping, you know, that I could take that would maybe prevent me from that. But, of course, if you look at, like, malaria, a lot of the malaria drugs that you take are actually, they mask the malaria when you've got it or they mask other diseases. So there are risks whatever you take. Now, you have, in previous episodes of Not The Footy Show, talked about uh, athletes who've been interviewed about taking performance-enhancing drugs and would you take these drugs knowing the consequences to win the gold medal and the striking percentage of athletes oh yep I'd do it anyway just to win that medal I'd I'd take those risks and what we're seeing here is the same sort of thing people are prepared to take those risks searching for that glory now as us as outside citizens out, uh, what what rights do they have to put us in danger by their attendance I mean, if they, one of these athletes comes back and brings a disease with them, knowing full well before they left that it was a chance to happen, where does that leave it all? Well, I think you have to then look at this. What was uh, the, the opposite of the SARS virus is what needs to happen is there need to be screening before the athletes leave Brazil. Not when they get back to Australia where we screen them at the airport, yeah. which is what happened with SARS. So you could have sat next to someone on the plane for eight hours who had the SARS virus and they could have passed it on to you and you come through and you only find out when you get back to Australia. To me, the screening for that needs to be done at the airport. Sure, it's going to cause a logjam, but if, if the world is serious, then you are going to have to isolate it in Brazil. Well, it's obviously the Olympic movement have taken it serious because they've issued condoms with special Zika gel on it to kill the Zika virus. Is that how you get it then? Well, it's one of you can get it. It can be transferred sexually. Right. So we're going to the world's biggest amateur orgy. Well, we know the Olympic Village is renowned for exactly. So I mean, it's a funny one, the whole Zika thing. Now, I I don't know that I'd go. I would have to seriously question when I... We've already had a couple of golfers pull out. One, because his wife has been sick and he doesn't want to take that opportunity. There's basketballers in America talking about, no, nah, I'm not going to go. I can't. I don't want to take that risk. And it's it's not a risk where you go down there, you perform, you get sick. It, it's What will happen is in five or ten years' time when your child is born, they won't have a brain. And this is... It's, it's a... Very, very, very nasty disease. It's not necessarily going to affect the individual who carries it or contracts it. It's down the down the line that it starts affecting people. It's a very difficult one, John. To, I know. You know, I mean, some would say golfers, American basketballers. Who needs them there? Should they even be there? Well, that's another argument. But it'll be interesting to see how all that plays out. And hopefully everybody's fine and nothing goes wrong. I certainly hope that's the case and, uh, you know, that there maybe there is some vaccination that doesn't infringe on the anti-doping uh, regulations and that people can be, you know, they find some way of quelling it. Maybe if you eat meat from the, some sort of Russian satellite state, that will cover it up and kill it and cure it. <laughs> I know, we'll ask Lucas Brown, shall we? 
Oh dear. Well, I think that's probably enough for this podcast. We'll hopefully be back with another one very soon. We hope you've enjoyed it. And, uh, you know, please feel free to share your thoughts with us either on the website or on our Facebook page, Not The Footy Show. Cheers, Ash. Some people are on the pitch. They think it's all over. See ya. We'll be back next week.